Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. chapter 1 verses 12 to 26 and Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They then prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in others' tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rosie. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. That was a very good response. We've clearly done liturgy this morning. Um, so it's our second week in a series on the Jesus Revolution, looking at the early chapters of Acts and thinking about what it means for us to be part of that. And we're going we're gonna to think this morning about worshipping and waiting, which is kind of taking us back to our roots as well as the roots of the Jesus movement in Scripture. But before we get into that, I just want to reassure people in this wedge or on this side of the room that Sam doesn't have a skin condition or a Donald Trump kind of love affair with sunbeds. It's just the screen. Everyone over here, you've got no idea what I'm talking about. Your screen is normal. It's okay, but it get, it, it, it'll get you 
because I've mentioned Donald Trump, into thinking about politics, which is very useful because that's where I'm starting. So I don't know if you've, it was seamless until I told you, um, I don't know if you've been looking at the news this week at all, but I've noticed some political commentary about Rishi Sunak, our current prime minister, trying to present himself as a candidate for change. Now, I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe he's the change that you want to see. But there's a little incredulity abroad that the Prime Minister would present himself this way when he leads a party that has been in power for 13 years. It reminded me, actually, of his famous pledges, his five famous pledges. Can anyone remember any of those? They're, they're on the screen. Slightly cheating. Um, anyway, at the beginning of 2023, Rishi Sunak vowed to halve inflation grow the economy, reduce debt, cut NHS waiting lists and times, plus stop small boat crossings. And this happened back in the halcyon days in which Rishi was a strong and stable relief to Liz Truss, who in turn had helped us turn the corner from Boris Johnson's party gate. Good times. In US politics, by contrast, potentially, there's a lot of talk about what a new president will do in their first 100 days. We'll get into the point. It's very symbolic. It's about how you use your power when you've got the greatest opportunity. While people are still enthusiastic about you and you haven't had to disappoint too many of them yet, what do you do with your first 100 days? What are your pledges? If you were going to be prime minister, what would you do with your first 100 days? The principle is that what you would do with your first 100 days says something about what matters most to you. How are you going to spend your political capital? And actually, you can see something like this repeatedly in Scripture because what people do first is restore right worship. Think about Noah coming out of the ark. What does he do? He builds an altar. Think about King David. His first 100 days after Saul's death are marked by an attempt to bring the covenant into Jerusalem, the failure of that attempt, and then another attempt with sacrifices made every six steps, and David dancing before the Lord with all his might, and then offering sacrifices before the Ark of the Covenant. This takes multiple chapters of the story in the Bible. David then goes to try to build a temple, but the Lord speaks through the prophet Nathan, and that becomes Solomon's first priority when he takes over from David. Think about Mary when Gabriel tells her that she will conceive the Messiah. She responds with resonant praise. So worship is a biblical priority. Worship is a biblical priority. Worship comes first. And the same is true in the Jesus Revolution. There's a renewal of worship that happens at the beginning of the at the beginning of this uh, at the beginning of Acts at the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. This happens when God does a new thing, and so as He ascends to the Father, Jesus tells His followers to wait for power from on high, and they gather together in His name to pray and to worship Him. And actually, the most distinctive thing about the Jesus Revolution is their worship. First, who they worship, then what happens when they worship, and finally, what they do in response, what their worship comes to be in response to what God has done. And that is the outline, handily, for the rest of what I have to say. So let's think first about who they worship. Who do they worship? 
<clears throat> that was subtle, wasn't it? They worship Jesus. Now, that might sound really blindingly obvious to you, but it's hard to emphasize how shocking this is when it first happens. For the world around them, to all intents and purposes, it's a little bit like people starting to worship the co-founder of The Orchard, co-leader of Trinity Church Nottingham, Amy Hughes, who is a powerful and compelling Bible teacher, whose prayers are effective, who can prophesy over you in striking ways, even if she hasn't died and been resurrected yet. I know that sounds trite this morning, but it is that shocking to the world around these people. Why? Because they come out of a Jewish context. In a Jewish context, you can only worship God. So when you read through the story of the Bible, when an angel appears, they say, don't fear and don't worship. Don't worship me. I'm not the appropriate object of your worship. I'm not the one that you should be worshiping. You worship God alone. You worship God alone. This is where we start in the Ten Commandments. Worship the Lord your God. Have no other gods before him. It's because God is holy. God is different to anyone, anything else, rather than distant. And what changes, what causes the Jesus revolution is that Jesus, Jesus comes to be seen by these first Christians as the very image of the invisible God. That's how Paul writes about Jesus later in the New Testament. He calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And God God's self shows this by using God's power to raise Jesus from the dead, to vindicate the message of Jesus that in him the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus and God, Jesus, get, Jesus gets really close to God, closer than anyone else ever has been. Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God vindicates Jesus, and you get this understanding both that Jesus is God and that he is somehow not the Father, and this emerges really, really quickly because they start to worship him, because they start to worship him, and this is what shapes Christian belief down the ages. Christian belief is actually shaped by its worship. The law of worship is the law of belief is a kind of theological maxim. For those who want it in Latin, lex arendi, lex credendi. And as good Anglicans, that is how your worship is shaped. We join in the Book of Common Prayer with all the other Anglicans in principle, um, and that is what gives us our sense of who we are as a a body of believers. Our, Our belief is shaped by our worship. If you look at Acts 1, 21 and 24, you can see this happening in real time because they talk about the Lord Jesus when he was living among us and then they turn around and pray to the Lord who knows everyone's hearts, show us which of these two you've chosen. They're using the same label for Jesus as for the deity that they are praying to. That's a really significant thing for you to do as a Jew at this point in history. That's absolutely massive. Jesus becomes worthy of their worship. They're praying to someone that they've known as a friend. And they're Jews who know that only God deserves this kind of worship. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus is holy like God is holy. 
Jesus is sufficiently holy for it to be worth changing your view of God. Now, I want to encourage you, go and read the Gospels again with that in mind and see what jumps out to you. Because this is the foundation of Christian worship. The who of Christian worship is something of crucial importance, a pun I have stolen from Johnny. If you're a Christian, you worship the one who was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead on the third day. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead, as runs the creed, which we all recited last week. I know that you knew that. But you trust Jesus to be the authoritative voice about who God is, and everything else follows from that. As one theologian put it, the answer to the question, who is God, is God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. In the Jesus revolution, then, you fix your eyes on Jesus. You join the revolution by fixing your eyes on him and following where he leads, a little bit like you try not to do when you're driving down the other lane of the motorway from a car crash. You fix your eyes on Jesus and just allow that to shape where your steering wheel is taking the car. That's what it means to worship Jesus, to turn your attention towards him and to trust him to speak with God's voice into your life. But what happens as you do this? For the disciples at the beginning of Acts, what happens as they do what Jesus said and wait in the city? Well, what happens is that God comes close to them. This is the story of Pentecost. We got to it in the final few verses of our reading. And Pentecost, I think, is a story that lots of us know well. You may even, like me, have a Pentecostal background and upbringing. I, in fact, am about as traditionally Pentecostal as it is possible to get. One of my great uncles is a founding signatory of Assemblies of God in Great Britain, which is one of our Pentecostal denominations. So I'm about as Pentecostal traditionally as you can get. But I think that being raised in that setting where this story is told and retold can blind you to some of the important things that are going on in it. It becomes a founding myth almost, told, retold, reinterpreted so many times that familiarity with it can potentially even breed contempt. Or at least for me, familiarity has possibly bred a loss of hunger a loss of desire, a loss of a sense that it would be a very good thing if this were to happen again. An ambivalence potentially towards it. Familiarity with this story can blind me to what's happening. So here's my question. What's the most important thing that happens at Pentecost? Theologically, the most important thing that happens at Pentecost is not tongue speech or witness or any of these things. It's that God appears. Pentecost is a theophany, a Greek word made of two words, theos and phanos. Um, It's a revelation of God. It's about God appearing. It's God showing up in language that we might use every week. It's an encounter with God. That's what happens when these disciples stay in the city and wait as Jesus has told them to wait and worship him. God comes near. And it's really significant. This is like a founding event at the beginning of the Jesus revolution because there are echoes 
in the way that Luke describes Pentecost, of God appearing on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament to give the law, to give the Ten Commandments, and to reveal himself as a God who is a God of a people, not a God without a people, not a God who doesn't love his people. There's fire, there's a strange sound, there's an unexpected articulation of God's will, and what that all adds up to a new moment, a new movement, a revolution in God's relationship with his people. Pentecost is where this kind of, this revolution gets its kind of shape after Jesus. It's the revelation of God as the Holy Spirit. It's the revelation of what the Spirit of Jesus looks like. It's the revelation of how God is going to continue to relate to his people over time after Jesus has been raised. It's really significant. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, which is actually called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts chapter 16 and in Philippians 2, the Spirit of Jesus is poured out in power. And here's what it does. It combines the willing engagement of the believer's lungs, tongues, and lips with the very power of God to proclaim a good news that meets people where they're at. It combines what the believers themselves do with God's power to change the world. It puts those two things together. God gets involved in what his people are doing in a much closer way than he previously has. God's people get wrapped up in God's presence, and so they become able to speak with God's power to change the world around them. That's what happens when you worship that's why this is foundational. That is why Jesus tells his, his disciples to stay in the city and wait. Because this is how God is going to relate to them. For the rest of the early church, whose days we may still be in, for all we know. So as these first believers reorient around Jesus, and God pours out the spirit of Jesus on them, what does it lead them to do? Well, there are lots of things, but you'll be pleased to know that most of them are coming in future weeks. Most significantly, what I want to dwell on today is that they do what I've already highlighted. They continue to worship, and they continue to wait. In the Jesus revolution, worship becomes waiting on this God who happens, this God who is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, you wait for him to pour out the spirit of Jesus and to show you what he's doing. You don't go where he hasn't sent you. You don't do what you haven't seen the Father already doing. You worship and wait. Jesus doesn't send his disciples out to witness to him. He gets them to worship and wait first. The first hundred days are worshiping and waiting. Pentecost is... is traditionally celebrated 50 days after Easter. So at least the first 50 days are worshipping and waiting for the power of God. And then we can do other things. It's a really significant first. It's, it's what we put first. It, so, yes, I've lost my place. You wait. You wait on the God revealed in Jesus for him to pour out the spirit of Jesus and show you where he's moving because he's doing a new thing. 
And he's God and you're not. And you don't know what it is until he tells you. You don't know where he's going to meet you until he moves you in that direction. Pentecost is a new theophany. It's a new appearance of God. At Sinai, God gave the law as a gift to his people to make it possible to live in relationship with him. And at Pentecost, the spirit of Jesus is poured into his people and the law is written on their hearts. And Jesus calls you and I to something infinitely greater than the law. He calls you into his love. And that is what he's still doing. It's new in every generation. He's still doing that same new thing. This pattern of encounter, drawing people towards transformation, hasn't gone away. And it won't. This is what it shows us in Scripture. When God is going to do something, he stirs people, he calls people to wait in the city, to pray, to look for his power to come on them. When God's going to do something, he stirs people to pray. They start to pray like it all depends on God and like God might actually listen to them and do what they ask. They confront God boldly with his own promises and demand that for their day. They go to Jesus who asks you, what do you want? And they say, God, I actually want you to do this again. God, my ears have heard of you, but I'd like my eyes to actually see. There's, this, there's a verse in um, Matthew that talks about the kingdom of God, uh, Luke actually, suffering violence and the violent taking it with force. Someone will tell me afterwards. Um, and I had a conversation with someone in the last week about whether we should ask nicely in prayer or tell God what to do, whether we should use imperatives. And if you've prayed at all with us today, then you will have prayed the Lord's Prayer. That is rammed full of imperatives. That tells God what to do. That says, give me today my daily bread. That says, God, you move. Your kingdom come. You tell it to happen. I think we've potentially lost a sense of the appropriateness of, quote-unquote, telling God what to do in prayer, in submission to his will. I understand that. But coming with an unction and a zeal and saying, God, let your kingdom come. Like Jesus told us to. Like Jesus specifically instructed us to. Um, there is obviously another side to this argument. However, you're not hearing it now. But it's not about asking nicely, I don't think. I don't think that we're actually called to ask for some of these things. I think we're called to tell God's kingdom to come and to wait for his power to release it on the earth. We're supposed to be the kind of people that worship and wait and then get wrapped up in God's power such that we can speak his change to the world around us. You are supposed to carry that. You can carry that. You do carry that. That's what this church is. It's a group of people that do that. If not, shut the doors. Let's go home. <clears throat> I'm sure Johnny agrees with me, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> when God appears, yeah, see, when God appears, when there is a theophany, when we have an encounter, when there's a slice of Pentecost that jumps out of the pages of Scripture and makes its way through time and lands here, 
It draws people to their knees, whether they're inside of a church or passing by on a street. That's the story of what happened in the Hebridean revival. People were praying inside the church and people were falling on their knees outside the church because of the presence of God, because of the encounter. Do you not long for that? I do. I do. And as I've already told you, I've already owned the fact that I'm a Pentecostal and I haven't always longed for that. I have been ambivalent towards that. That is the honest truth. I have seen over-emotionalism in my own analysis. And I've got questions about what it means for people to fall over and do carpet time and definitely bark like dogs if you ever heard stories about that. I've got questions about that. But actually, I seriously long for God to come in such power that people walking past on Villa Road or coming down Mansfield Road notice it. That the presence of God is such that it turns the heart of someone driving past in a car. I do long for that. This is what draws people towards transformation. It's the holy presence of God that highlights people's sin and compels them to seek something different. You know, in the Welsh revival, the pubs were not empty because people were suddenly convinced of the health risks of alcohol but because they encountered the sober intoxication of the Holy Spirit. That is what I long for. They wanted that more than they wanted to be in the pub. And look, let's not pretend that this is a done deal. An ecstatic experience does not produce a disciple. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 will tell you that as easily as any cautionary tale of any church leader in the contemporary West that you care to cite. But it is encounter with God that makes transformation desirable because that is where you see God. And until you have a vision of God, you don't have a vision for change. This doesn't produce perfect people, but it does produce worshippers whose lives are not their own. It produces consecrated lives, not perfect lives. You can see this in Scripture in the time that they dedicate uh, to paying attention to God. And you can see that in you because you come to church every week and you give God at least this portion of your time. But you see it in every area of a, of a consecrated life because it's a truly consecrated life and is one in which every part is brought into God's presence. For Ananias and Sapphira, money was a stronghold. For others, it's sex. For others, it's power. I don't know you and I don't know what yours is, but I know that there is something in there. And I know that you probably know. You might even be panicking now in case I continue my list. I've, honestly, I've recently felt the turning of the screw in my own life on this. A sense of God going deeper in some places that I thought, I, that I honestly, in my complacency, thought he had dealt with. We've sung that God's worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. There is more surrender for you this morning, however long you've been in this, and however far you've gone. And in worship, we turn our attention towards Jesus again and again, and invite him into every part of our lives. Worship is not just singing. Worship is not just Eucharist, if you're a higher Anglican. Worship is not just the things that we do in church, but singing and praying together, it reminds us of our true north. 
And ultimately, you know, the fall of a Christian leader is only so devastating because you know in your bones that worship and obedience in mission can't be separated. The worship of the Jesus revolution is about a focus on Jesus that transforms you from the inside out, and it shows up in everything that you do. It shows up in what you do with your money. Jesus tells his disciples, freely you've received, freely give. And to the best of our knowledge, the earliest Christian communities practiced what we could call risky generosity, subsistence-level communities lending their stuff to people that they don't yet know in ways that drew these people into community. It shows up in your sexual ethic. The earliest Christian communities embodied a stark contrast with the surrounding promiscuous and stingy society. Tim Keller puts it this way. A pagan gave, their, gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. It shows up in how you relate to power. The disciples actually believed, actually believed that Jesus, this person who they had hung around with, was more powerful than the authorities who imprisoned and beat them. That's a level of opposition that you and I don't yet face. And I think we can often struggle to believe that Jesus has more power. And they used their own power to pursue justice for the widow and the orphan. It reminds me of a story that Johnny told in the 9 a.m. service. I was reminded of it when he told it earlier. Um, of a North Korean woman who, um, who came and spoke at leadership conference earlier this year. Um, who, while in prison, pursued, pursued worship by by one woman going into a toilet cubicle with a, with a verse of scripture that they'd written down, two standing outside and praying, because this was the only way that they could possibly gather to worship. It reminds me of the history of Jerusalem, where there's been, there's been worship throughout interreligious conflict for the entire period since Jesus died and, and rose. They actually fight to be able to worship. There are stories of monks concealing weapons under their habits. Now, I think that we fight with different weapons, but that level of prioritization of worship says something in and of itself. Shows up in money, in sex, in power. I think it can even show up in your mental health. Paul writes in the New Testament that we are not given a spirit that makes us again a slave to fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And I think sometimes that we have given away the ability to talk about stuff, that, stuff in mental health areas theologically as a manifestation of brokenness that God is deeply interested in healing. See, in the Reformation, theologians were incredibly interested in the kinds of things that would today qualify as depression and anxiety, etc. And they thought that the church could hold out meaningful help by introducing people to the power and presence of Jesus. 
the, med- the medical conversation around mental health is such a gift, and I'm so grateful for it. I've done mental health first aid training. I see a counselor. I'm grateful for cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm pro-antidepressant, just in case you were wondering, in the right circumstances. But Jesus also has peace and hope to offer to people, and they go beyond what you can understand. And so, as a Christian, as someone who is shaped by worshiping and waiting this mess- Worshipping and waiting for this Messiah and his spirit to show you what to do. You have that hope too. You carry that. So to sum up, the Jesus revolution is distinctive because it worships Jesus. I know that's the insight you came for. Honestly, the point at which the Jesus revolution ends is the point at which worship ceases to be central. So if that is ever the case here, then shut the doors because it's over. But when you worship Jesus, the Bible teaches that you can expect him to send his spirit in power. And if you're part of the Jesus revolution, you allow his spirit to change what you think of God and how you shape your life in response to that vision. And the key practice for this is waiting. Spending time intentionally in the presence of God and allowing God into every part of your life. That's what true worship is, and it's truly transformative. More transformative even, perhaps, than a prime minister's program for their first 100 days. And you know what? We're close to the beginning of a series. So if you started counting from last week, we got 10 weeks on this. And then if you keep going till Christmas or the new year or a little bit beyond that, you're not far off counting to 100 days. And like I've said... I'm actually believing for a renewal of the church here, in this place, in our city, in our country. And I love what we've seen, but I don't think it's all of it, and so it's not enough. I want to see God move again. I want another sliver of Pentecost in this time and place. I want to see a revival in the UK. So here's my question. What would it look like For you and I to devote ourselves to calling for that over the next 100 days. What would it look like for you and I to prioritize that with our time, with our money, with the influence that we have in the conversations that we're in? What would it look like for you to do that? See, you are part of Trinity at a great time. There's a sense that we're seeing like green shoots, stories of changed hearts and lives, stories of healings, stories of transformation, stories of increased hunger for the presence of God, stories of that happening among our young people. And if you want to get a glimpse of that happening, come to the evening service, serve in emerging generations, ask how you can support a student. But there's a sense that maybe we might be on the edge of God doing something truly amazing. And maybe if we ask him and we consecrate our worship and consecrate ourselves, just maybe we might be able to see what he's doing and join in with it. And we might get wrapped up in God's presence to speak with God's power to change the world around us. Because right now, if you look at the world around you, this is what is most needed. Not policies, whether government or opposition. 
I heard someone say recently that the most realistic people in the room are the ones who recognize that we're desperate for a move of God. I can say whatever I like, but my preaching is not going to do that. Whisper it, but I'm not even sure Johnny's will either. We need another Pentecost. We need, we need another theophany. We need God to arise and let his enemies be scattered. His enemies, including anxiety and depression, and including, including as we were praying for the orchard, like anorexia and identity issues that are taking, taking robbing the confidence of a generation of girls coming through, which is why I'm so excited about the Orchard Youth yesterday, and believing that people went away leaving chains behind. That's the kind of thing that we need. We need to wage war with weapons that we don't have in our hands. What would it look like for you and I to devote ourselves to that in the next 100 days? It would look like more time worshiping, more time waiting, more time in his presence. It would look like a greater familiarity with the Jesus that we encounter in scripture. Looks like going back to the New Testament. And out of that, a greater obedience to his call. We're going to wait together now in his presence. And as we do, if you're new to this, I want to invite you that perhaps the call for you today is simply to open your heart to Jesus and his spirit for the first time. So I'm going to ask if everyone would bow their head and close. Ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes. Maybe that all of this is new for you and some of it sounds like madness. But maybe there's a stirring in you to be open to Jesus. It might be that this is the first time for you. It might be that this is a kind of a moment where you realize that things have slipped and you need to mark that. So if that's you on either of those, just want to invite you to raise your hand. Going to wait for about 20 seconds to allow people a chance to do that.